Well, we are still in Esther. We're in Esther chapter 5. Um, as has been practiced, just if anybody's uh, a guest, uh, I'm not going to read through the chapter and then go through it, but I'll be reading through the sections in the chapter as we address them. Um, and that's probably the best way. But if you keep your Bible open to Esther 5, that's helpful. It's always good for you to see where we are uh, and where things are coming from so you can check and see um, the things that I say uh, and check them against God's Word. Um, so I'm going to pray for us again uh, as we come before the, the Word of God. It doesn't hurt to continue to pray. Um, we all need His uh, Spirit to open our eyes and soften our hearts uh, to hear Him. So, Father, we do pray that. Lord, as we come before your word now, we do ask that you would that you would unite our hearts to fear your name, that you would give us the humility and the grace to hear and to be corrected and to be drawn near to you. So, Lord, please be at work in our lives. Fill me with your spirit to proclaim your truth accurately, um, powerfully, and clearly. And may the ears of all of us be open to hear and to receive your word for us today. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. I think as people, especially we just came out of Halloween and people like to be scared. They like suspense. I think we like suspense, the, the, the thriller. It, it, it heightens our anticipation, our awareness, and it often draws us into a moment. Television has certainly mastered the idea of suspense, and they've, they've actually mastered it in a lot of ways in endings. I remember growing up in the 80s, and quite often all the shows that I loved ended with a cliffhanger. You know, there was the, um, you know, Airwolf, would Stringfellow Hawk make it out okay? Or the A-Team, uh, would, uh, would all the guys be okay? Or MacGyver, how many times did MacGyver end up in a pickle? Or Battlestar Galactica, you know, would Starbuck and Apollo be okay? Or would the Cylons come after them? And only half of you in this audience have any idea who I'm talking about, some of these, which is totally fine with me. And the hardest thing about all of it was waiting an entire week to find out what would happen. But you know, one of the biggest examples of this happened in March of 1980 when millions and millions of people were left with their jaws on the floor wondering who in the world shot JR. And it wasn't until November of that year, so not the next week, but months and months later that 350 million people tuned in to find out who actually shot J.R. Ewing. You know, cliffhangers draw us in, don't they? They draw us in. And at the end of Esther 4, we're left with a bit of a cliffhanger. A situation we didn't know how it would turn out. If you back up and look at verse 12 in chapter 4, it says, And they told Mordecai what Esther had said. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. And then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go, gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf and do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. Mordecai then went away and did everything as Esther had ordered them. Just left at that. 
Esther is about to put her life on the line, step into a situation that could very well lead to her execution. Actually, one thing that kind of backs that idea up is there's some reliefs, some excavations um, from that period, uh, particularly from Persepolis, that show kind of a relief on the wall of the, the Persian king on his throne, and he has the golden scepter, but there's also a Median soldier right next to the throne holding a very large axe. And so the idea is that you're going to get one or the other. You're either going to have the scepter held out to you in grace, or the axe is going to fall upon your neck in judgment. So there was a real tension with all of this. And this morning, we're going to start to see the resolution. Not all of it, not the entire resolution of the book of Esther, but we will begin to to hopefully breathe a little bit easier. Yet more importantly, I think what we are going to see in this chapter is a glaring contrast. A glaring contrast between humility and pride and between wisdom and folly. And in it all, I think we're going to see some of the economy of God, how his ways are different than our natural bent, how his ways are different than the ways of the world. And we're also in that going to see what or who he looks to, that his eyes are upon the humble, to him who is humble and contrite of spirit. That's the one to whom he will look. So as we turn to Esther, we see at least, I think a little bit more clearly, her humility start to show up in chapter 4. What we just read, it's in that chapter that we see that she's open to correction. She had said, no, there's no way I can go in, and Mordecai pushes back, and she changes her mind. There's a willingness in her to hear from another and to be changed. And that takes humility, especially, I mean, she is the queen, okay? She is fairly high up in in the pecking order of society. She's the queen. But not only that, the fact that she is willing to fast. She doesn't just say, hey, Mordecai, you and all the Jews fast for me. I'm going to hang out here, lay on my bed for three days, and then we'll see what happens. She, She and her young women, she includes everyone. She joins in that fast. She took the truth that she was a supplicant to heart, that she needed to lift her voice to the Lord. And so now we pick up in verse 1. On the third day, Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace in front of the king's quarters while the king was sitting on his royal throne inside the throne room opposite the entrance to the palace. On the third day, she readied herself. She put on her royal robes, not just really nice clothes, not just fancy clothes, but in essence, she, she put on royalty. She made it very well known She's the queen. It's the queen who's going to stand there. And so she goes, and she stands in the place from which there is no turning back. You don't just go there and go, oh, wait, I forgot. Sorry, I, that axe is staying right there. It's okay, we're good, we're good. You, you, you don't. You stand there, and you wait. There's no turning around. There's no change in your mind. It's a place of either life or death. And the text doesn't tell us how long she stood there, but however long it was, I would imagine it was a little nerve-inducing, nerve-wracking in that point. And then we come to verse 2. And when the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court, she won favor in his sight, and he held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. Then Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter. 
there's relief. There's relief. Esther can now, maybe now she can breathe. She can exhale. She's won favor in the sight of the king. She can enter and she accepts that, that favor that's bestowed on her by touching the tip of the scepter. The axe has no, no effect on her whatsoever. She's received the grace of the king. And we cannot ignore that this is the Lord's working. We've quoted this verse a number of times, Proverbs 21.1. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. She receives life, not death. She's shown grace, not condemnation. She's queen, not a criminal. Fear is now gone. There's hope bubbling to the surface. God has been at work. God has heard the cries of his people, those people who have humbled themselves before him for three days. Folks, this is who our God is. We read it earlier in the call to worship, Psalm 9, verses 9 and 10. The Lord is a stronghold for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble, and those who know your name put their trust in you. For you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. Further in Matthew 7, 11, Jesus said, If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? This is believing prayer answered by God. Our gracious, good, and loving God, his people, those in, in covenant with him, those who know him, if you look back at, at Psalm 9, those who know him, the normal way of life for those who know the Lord is to trust him. Right? That's what that text says. And those who know your name put their trust in you. It's just a natural, logical flow. So we pray, we put our trust in him. That's what we're to do because we are to trust our stronghold, our refuge. And along with that, folks, God delights in our prayers. He delights to hear us. And we should delight in praying. He calls us into that fellowship, into that, uh, that, that, that intimacy with him through prayer. Well, from there, we move into the story a little bit further. Look at verse 3. And the king said to her, What is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? And it shall be given you, even to the half of my kingdom. And Esther said, If it please the king, let the king and Haman come today to a feast that I have prepared for the king. Then the king said, Bring Haman quickly so that we may do as Esther has asked. So the king and Haman came to the feast that Esther had prepared. And as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king said to Esther, What is your wish? It shall be granted you. And what is your request? Even to the half of my kingdom it shall be fulfilled. Then Esther answered, My wish and my request is, if I have found favor in the sight of the king, and if it please the king to grant my wish and fulfill my request, let the king and Haman come to the feast that I will pray for them, and tomorrow I will do as the king has said. Now one thing I want you to notice here is that she is addressed as Queen Esther. Only once before in this book has that happened. Now, after this, it occurs 16 more times. And I find this interesting, and a commentator helped point some of this out, but because since chapter 2, she has hidden her Jewish identity. She's done that based on her cousin's um, directions, on Mordecai's direction. You, you know, keep your Jewish identity quiet. 
She's fully assimilated. She is Esther. There's not really much of a Hadassah left. And though we don't know what it's been like for the five years as queen, we know that at least in the last 30 days, the king hasn't called her. Despite her best efforts, even though she seems to be the perfect queen in many ways, he has not called her for 30 days. And one commentator wrote this. He said, the king seems to have grown bored with her so that the more she sought to live like the Persian she was not, the more precarious her position in the court seems to have become. But now that she decides to be the child of God that she always was, now that she has resolved to stand for her people and let the consequences fall where they may, now, having at last determined to risk everything for her people's sake, the crown, her life, everything. Now, as she comes to the king to plead for her people, who is it that the king sees? The king saw Queen Esther. And when the king speaks to her, who is she? What is your wish, Queen Esther? So it appears that as she stands in solidarity with the people of God, with the God of the covenant, she doesn't lose anything. She actually gains she gains in that process. And then the king asks of her because he knows that it was, a, it was a huge risk for her to come before him unannounced and uninvited. And so he says, what is your request? It shall be given you even to the half of my kingdom. Now, that expression, just so you know, that's not, it's not exactly meant to be taken strictly literally. Okay? He's not going to say, hey, here, we'll cut it off like the 40th parallel. You get that half, I'll keep this half. That's, that's not what he's talking about. It's actually more of a commonly used phrase to indicate that I'm really disposed to giving you what you want. What you ask for is, I'm going to give it. We, we can reference a very similar instance. If you remember in, in Mark 6, um, King Herod put himself in a rather difficult situation when he said something along this line, because Mark 6, verse 22, for when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guest, and the king said to the girl, ask me for whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half of my kingdom. Now, that half of the kingdom ended up being John the Baptist's head on a platter, but it, it was, he had to follow through with it. He made this very public pronouncement. So how does Esther answer this this request from the king? She doesn't do so directly. Instead, she invites him and Haman to a feast prepared. But why not? Why not at that point in time lay out her request when when he seems so well disposed to, to answering it positively? Why not strike while the proverbial iron is hot? I think there's a few reasons here. One, her request would involve trying to reverse an edict that is irreversible. We've already been told that this edict goes out and it's marked with the signet ring of the king and it's irreversible. And even if that were possible, it would cost the king 10,000 talents, not quite half the kingdom, but a very, very, very significant aspect of his tax revenue. And besides the fact, this would affect how the king is viewed as a leader. Because he did put his signet ring on the previous edict, and now they're saying, oh, no, just say, you didn't want to do that. Stop that. And, and it, would be, it would be an instance of, of losing face. 
And in Middle Eastern culture, losing face is not something that happens well. Okay, when I lived in Turkey, I remember um, two cabbies were fighting for the same spot on the road, and it caused a traffic jam because neither one would admit that the other was there before them. And so it was a traffic jam for hours because neither one would back down and lose face in front of the person that they were taking in the cab. It's just the way that you just don't lose face. But I think there's still another reason, and that's that this is going to be a pretty massive reveal that Esther has when she makes the ask. She's going to have to make known that she's hidden her Jewish identity for at least five years. More than that, really. Uh, There's some potential, at least worry, I think, for her about backlash for her deception. She's seen how fickle this king can be how manipulated he can be by others. He's, he's already been manipulated into putting out an edict that will destroy and annihilate every Jew. And so when she goes, oh, by the way, I'm a Jew, can you not do that? That might not go over well. So we instead have a feast that the king and Haman agree to go to, obeying her request, which honestly I find highly and royally ironic at this point in time. Because if you remember earlier, there was an edict in chapter 1 that was sent out to the entire uh, known uh, Persian world that every man should be the head of his house and every wife should listen to her husband. And here, the two most powerful men in the land are listening to Esther and obeying her. You can take that as you want. So, Well, then at the feast, while drinking... The king asks Esther, what is her request? He asks again, what is her wish? And it will be granted. Now that's reassuring, isn't it? For him to say, it will be granted. And looking at verses 7 and 8, I think we see so much more of Esther's wisdom and really further answer to prayer and how she deals with this. So look at verse 7. Then Esther answered, my wish and my request is, which already just heightens this, doesn't it? The way she starts off. My wish and my request is, if I found favor in the sight of the king, and if it pleased the king to grant my wish and to fulfill my request, well, let the king and Haman come to the feast that I will prepare for them tomorrow, and tomorrow I will do as the king has said. You know, I think in, in maybe fisherman language, she's master at setting the hook. She's not losing this fish once she's got it. She has set that hook perfectly. You you believe she's about to make her request known. And how she words that, she's about to do it. She builds and builds, and just as it seems she's going to make it known, she invites them both to another feast. But by the way she says what she says, and by the way she invites them to the next feast, if the king agrees to come, He is implicitly saying, I will answer your request even more. Because he says, uh, she says, and if it please the king to grant my wish and fulfill my request, let the king and Haman come to the feast I will prepare for them. So if you're going to grant it, then come tomorrow. And there's almost implied, if you're not, go eat a peanut butter and jelly or something or whatever. Like, if you come to my feast, you're going to grant it. Beautiful how she words this. One commentator said, it seemed that Esther had laid 
her plans well and executed them with patience, care, and cunning. All that now remained in this desperate game of chess was to wait until the pieces were in exactly the right position before making the decisive move that would hopefully checkmate Haman. It might still be a long shot, but she had done everything in her power to give it the best chance of success. I think in this first part of chapter 5, in the last part of chapter 4, Esther has shown great humility and great wisdom. She's trusted in the Lord, and she's married, I think, that trust very well with shrewdness. I think of uh, Matthew 10, be wise as serpents, as innocent as doves. She is wise and cunning as a serpent here. And what a contrast she is with what we're going to see next in these next six verses. So look at the first sentence of verse 9. And Haman went out that day joyful and glad of heart. This guy is bouncing on the balls of his feet. He is, he is just, whoo, he's floating out that palace door. But what brought about this gladness and joy of heart for him? Well, he had been with the king and the queen, the only one invited. He was ecstatic at that privilege, and it's understandable. He is the only one in the land at that point in time who is having dinner with the royal couple. He's just enjoying that. He's, he's soaking it up. Hey, I'm hanging out with the king and the queen. Yet the next word in the verse is a conjunction that changes the whole tenor, doesn't it? But, watch for that word when you read Scripture. Watch for the word but. But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, that he neither rose nor trembled before him, he was filled with wrath against Mordecai. Now this reveals that his joy and his gladness of heart was ridiculously superficial. By the very fact that Mordecai, one man, one man, doesn't do what he wants him to do and show the, uh, the, the, the deference or the obeisance or whatever it is to him, his whole demeanor changes and the superficiality of his joy just floats to the surface. One person wrote, Haman's whole world revolved around his fragile ego. When it was stroked, as when the invitation came to Esther's party, he felt blessed. But even though nothing in the real world had actually changed, his power had not actually increased, yet Haman rejoiced. Likewise, his power was not really diminished by Mordecai's refusal to bow, yet Haman was incensed by it. His emotional strings were being pulled by his idol, which was public respect. When that idol was fed, he felt good, but when his idol was challenged, it led him to malice and anger. The same malice that caused his earlier decree to eliminate the Jewish people. His joy and his anger were simply the outward expressions of his heart's idolatry. So the root of Haman's varying reactions is idolatry. And it's not that he's bowing down to some wooden idol. It's an idolatry of the heart. And his idol either gets stroked or crushed. Let's, let's move on. We'll come back to that a little bit more in a minute. Verse 10. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home. And he sent and brought his friends and his wife Zeresh and 
Haman recounted to them the splendor of his riches, the number of his sons, which his wife apparently forgot at that point in time, the number of his sons, all the promotions with which the king had honored him and how he had advanced him above the officials and the servants of the king. Then Haman said, Even Queen Esther, let no one but me come with the king to the feast she prepared, and tomorrow also I am invited by her together with the king. Yet all of this is worth nothing to me. Nothing! So long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. And then his wife Zeresh and all his friends said to him, Let a gallows fifty cubits high be made, and in the morning tell the king to have Mordecai hanged upon it. Then go joyfully with the king to the feast. And this idea pleased Haman, and he had the gallows made. So we see that even though his idol was crushed by Mordecai, he restrains himself. You know, he can keep that good public decorum a little bit and stiffen up his upper lip, and he's fine, he's restrained. But what does he do? He goes home, and he strokes his own idol in many ways. He feeds that idol. He feeds his ego with his friends by, and his wife by recounting how absolutely amazing Haman is. It is, a, it is an evening about Haman, but he's still clearly, clearly shaken by what one man, what Mordecai would not do. So his wife gives advice. Now, it's not good advice, <laughs> but his wife gives advice, and he listens to her suggestion to build a gallows. A gallows 50 cubits high. So most of you, I, I think, use cubits when you, when you work on, like, house projects or things like that. But if you don't, uh, 50 cubits is about 75 feet tall, okay? So it's pretty significant. Um, and what they're going to do is have Mordecai either hanged or eliminated on it. And I say eliminated because the Persians didn't often use gallows to hang people. They actually used it to suspend a rather large spike and yank it up and let it go. I know, rather gruesome, but that's what they do to absolutely humiliate the person that was killed by the gallows. This is a ridiculously massive gallows. The, the only thing that rivals the size of these gallows is Haman's pride. His idol was public respect. It fed his pride. And people, their acclaim of him, fed that pride, that idolatry. Ed Welch put it this way. He said, regarding other people, our problem is that we need them for ourselves more than we love them for the glory of God. Now, I don't necessarily think that's just a Haman problem. I think that can quite often be a you and a me problem. We like to get the attaboy. We like the public respect. We like to feel that. In one way, we could call it the fear of man. John 12, verse 42 and 43. Nevertheless, many, even of the authorities, believed in him, believed in Jesus, But for fear of the Pharisees, because of the fear of man, they did not confess it, so they would not be put out of the synagogue, for they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. How often can that be true of us? Where we love the glory, the respect, the acclamation, the acclaim, the exaltation that comes from man more than we love what we get from God. 
and truly what we've already, as those who believe, received from God. The fear of man can be mighty powerful in our lives. It can cripple us from making wise and right decisions, and it will cripple us from true worship. But that's not the only idol we confront. Calvin aptly wrote that man's nature, so to speak, is a perpetual factory of idols. That factory is very rarely unemployed with us. (laughs) It is working fairly consistently. Building idols to to, to, to feed us. We, we, we easily set up or fall back on different ideas and hopes and dreams, achievements, statuses in our lives as, as what gives us life and hope and gladness of heart. And those things can often control us because when they are not fed, when they are starved by others or by whatever it may be, that gladness of heart is not what comes out. There's rage, there's anger, there's frustration, there's anxiety, there's depression. And anything in our lives can be an idol. It can be reputation. It can be other people. It can be praise. It can be work, money, family. It can be ourselves. And often our idols are not bad. They're actually good things, things that maybe we need, you know, it's good to have a family, it's good to have kids, but sometimes our kids and their success can be an idol. It's good to have a job, but our job can become an idol because we take that good thing and we turn it into the ultimate thing, that that's what gives us worth, that that's what defines us, and we live through that. Now, when we turn them into the ultimate, that's when we have problems, And you know, along with this, it's kind of a a wicked combination in in many ways, is because our natural heart's bent is to self-justification. Haman's was definitely towards self-justification. Ours is towards self-justification. We seek to make ourselves approvable. We seek to make ourselves better than everyone else. And naturally, we want to earn what we get. We have an aversion to grace. You know, the, the, the young man that came up to Jesus and said, good teacher, what must I do to, to earn eternal life? <laughs> no, or, you know, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? You, you don't do anything to inherit something. It happens when someone dies. You don't do it. It comes to you. But we, that's our natural bent. And so, you know, as we think about how that self-justification bent is part of it, when, when it's not being fed or to feed it, we have to put everyone else down below us so that we're better than the curve. We're better than average. And if someone doesn't fit into our narrative, we fight against them. We fight against whatever it may be. We put it down. We seek to destroy it. Exactly what Haman is doing. Mordecai doesn't fit his narrative of his puffed head that can barely fit through the palace doors. And so he wants to get rid of not only Mordecai, but the entire Jewish people. And just like Haman, we're crushed when our idols let us down. You know, one way, one person said, the way to figure out your idol is perhaps what you have nightmares about. Maybe what you have nightmares about, because it's that thing that that causes that anxiety. 
I've had, I'm sure some of mine is, is a pastoral idol and a performance because I've had nightmares about showing up here in my pajamas completely unprepared. What's yours? Well, folks, there's only one solution to this, and that's turn to the Lord. It's faith and repentance. We have to find, we have to actually receive our worth rather than seek to build it. Not create our own. Esther found it when she remembered and identified, I am in the covenant people of God. I'm part of his covenant. He has called me as his people and identified with the people of God. She did so in humility, which is the only way to do it. But Haman, on the other hand, is the enemy of the people of God. He only sought to feed his idol more and more, and that pride will lead to his downfall. There is a cliffhanger here, but it is going to lead to his downfall. Proverbs 16, 18, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Haman's life was controlled by his idolatry. There was a void in his life that, that was not and could not be filled by achievements or status. Folks, we all have a similar void. And there's only one solution again. It's Jesus. Because he identified with his people on a cross. He had his hands and his feet impaled for us. He took it because he loved us. Because he took our sin we can have life. We can have security. We have hope. It's because of his mercy and grace. We, folks, we have our worth. And we can stand before whoever in the world because we are in union. We are identified with Christ. And so our call is to find our identity in him. I, I love 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 30 and 31. And because of him, because of God's work, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. He's our wisdom. He's our righteousness. He's our redemption. He's our sanctification. Let us boast in him. Let us not boast in ourselves. Let us not look to others to, to puff us up. Let's look to him because he has loved us so deeply. So let us be a people who boast not in ourselves, but in the Lord who loved us and gave himself for us. Let us humble ourselves, turn to him, turn away from our idols, our false senses of self, and, and flee to him to his grace, to his love, to his mercy that is more than adequate, much more than adequate to give us the life and the hope and the strength to stand in the midst of whatever comes in our way and stands in our life. It is our life identified with him where we have hope and we can go to him in prayer. We can trust him. He is a stronghold. Let us put our trust in him. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for just the reality of the truth with you, life with you, 
of union with you. And so, Lord, we, we ask that you would help us. Lord, we, we know that we have our own idols, our own things that, that we look to that often get crushed and, and crush us. We pray that you would search our hearts and our minds, see if there be any wicked way in us, and, and lead us in the way everlasting. Change us, Lord, for your glory, and truly for our good and, and real and lasting joy. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.